This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Hi, I'm Simon McKenzie, a research fellow at UQ. Welcome to the show. It is not only the attacker that has obligations under international humanitarian law to protect civilians from harm. The defender also has a role to play. The requirement to take precautions against the effects of attack require the defender to minimise the risk that civilian and civilian objects will be harmed by enemy military operations. This might include doing things like locating military bases away from civilian areas or by clearly marking non-military objects. But how might this work when it comes to digital infrastructure? The dual-use nature of much digital infrastructure could make it considerably more complicated for states to take precautions to protect their civilians from harm during armed conflict. But what steps could they take? To help us, I'm joined today by my colleague in the Law and the Future of Raw team, Dr. Eve Massingham. A little disclaimer, we're going to be talking today about some ideas that we discuss in a paper that Eve and I have co-written that will be appearing in the Journal of International Humanitarian Studies later this year. So Eve, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Simon. So last episode, we heard from Lauren about precautions in attack. What are precautions against attack? So precautions against attack, or specifically precautions against the effects of attacks, is a requirement of international humanitarian law that doesn't get talked about very much. But as we know, there is an obligation on those engaged in armed conflict to undertake a couple of very clear actions in relation to their attacks. And so that first action is to ensure that they distinguish between military and civilian. The second is to ensure that where they are attacking the military objectives, they do so in a way that doesn't cause disproportionate impacts to the civilian population. And the third one is this idea of precautions. And it is normally talked about in the sense of precautions in attack, the precautions that you might take if you are engaging in an attack. But as you pointed out in the introduction, there are obligations for the defending party as well. And so this provision, Article 58 of Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions, tells us that those who are in control of a population, those who have the population within uh, their area also have obligations to make sure that if any attack is launched, the impacts of that attack are as small as possible. So what what might this actually require of defenders? Does it require them to do everything to to prevent harm to their civilians or what, what are the sorts of the steps that the law says they should take? There are a couple of really clear steps that Article 58 outlines. So Article 58 talks about endeavouring to remove the civilian population, individual civilians and civilian objects from the vicinity of military objectives. It talks about avoiding locating military objectives in the first place within or near densely populated areas. And it also talks about taking the other necessary precautions to protect the civilian population. And so within this, we can see some really clear directions, removing the civilian population and avoiding 
co-location of military objectives and civilian objects. But we also have this much broader provision, take other necessary precautions. So the first thing to say is that the commentaries to Additional Protocol 1 do give us quite a bit of an idea about what is really meant uh, by this. So this is the comment- the ICRC commentaries to Additional Protocol 1? That's correct, yes. And so in these commentaries, we can see some really specific ideas mentioned about what it, what it really means to take these necessary measures. So things like providing alerts and warnings, things like marking of particular protected infrastructure, organising your civil defence forces to assist the civilian population, providing adequate shelter for the civilian population, providing relief supplies. Examples of actions that are specifically mentioned uh, as being actions that would give effect to the obligation in Article 58. So the additional protocol one has a has a somewhat uncertain status in inter- customary international law, or not. Some of the provisions have an uncertain status. What's the provision of Article Fifty Eight, and um, are all countries obliged to take precautions against attack? So when we're talking about Article Fifty Eight, there is definitely some contention about the status of this particular provision. There is, however, a really important point which I think needs to be made which really goes more to the history of the idea behind Article 58, uh, which is that many societies have always had these kind of mechanisms by which they would ensure that the civilian population wasn't uh, affected by situations of armed conflict. I mean, I guess it's kind of an obvious point, isn't it, that you don't want your own civilians to be harmed or you want to make decisions that protect them in the event of armed conflict. Yeah, it's a really good indication of the balance that international humanitarian law tries to achieve between military imperatives and humanitarian imperatives. And it's an example of the reality behind much of international humanitarian law is that it only makes sense uh, to engage in a military operation in a way that doesn't uh, destroy the civilian population because ultimately you will have responsibilities for that civilian population. Um, so, if yeah, if we look at um, the the traditions uh, of warfare in, in many different countries, we see similarities to provisions like Article 58. And one of the examples um, that that I've used in a number of different um, pieces of writing is the palm leaf in, in Vanuatu. Um, so this uh, stems from the traditional customary approach to the conduct of, of conflicts uh, within uh, Vanuatu society and that you would have a, a symbol that would indicate um, that this is a particularly protected uh, area. And so that symbol is used by those within the conflict area to indicate uh, their protection. And, of course, uh, the, the palm leaf in, in Vanuatu is perhaps globally these days, the concept of it globally these days, better known as the Red Cross, Red Crescent and Red Crystal uh, protective emblems. But the idea behind them is very clear uh, clearly embraced by many different cultures and communities. So I think while uh, I guess it's such a sort of obvious thing that states might want to take steps to protect their own civilians, the, the fundamental principle is not so contested. It's more the extent of, of, of the obligation, which I guess really brings us to this idea of feasibility. So what, what role is feasibility playing in the provision and what does it actually require? 
Absolutely. So the provision requires that the parties to the conflict shall, to the maximum extent feasible, take the actions that we've been talking about. And this is um, something that if you look at the preparatory materials to the additional protocols, you know, something that very clearly a number of nation states put on the table to say, we can't be required to do everything. We can't be required to do the impossible. This cannot be an absolute uh, standard. And really reflected in this is a very clear understanding, that is the understanding of states, that to the maximum extent feasible cannot be used uh, as a way to, to stop a military or a government um, exercising its, its national security and, and national defence rights. And so by using the words to the maximum extent feasible, it is understood uh, in the context of Article 58 that that cannot mean that it has to be um, so on the side of the civilian population that you don't allow the military objective to be achieved. So, I mean, again, it's such a familiar thing for us in IHL, this idea of a balancing between two very different interests, the military interests and humanitarian interests. So I suppose we're in, we're in familiar terrain in some ways, this kind of uncomfortable balancing exercise. Yes, it's absolutely a familiar ambition for IHL provisions to try and achieve uh, this kind of balance. And so, you know, Article 58 would never have been agreed to by states. It would never be a part of Additional Protocol 1 if it had been able to be interpreted as requiring you to put the interests of the civilian population above and beyond the the national security and the national defence of a nation. And Therefore, the statements that you can read in the preparatory materials to um, the negotiations for additional Protocol 1 really, really make this point clear. It should no way affect the freedom of the state to in- undertake its, its military objectives. I mean, I think it really is one of the most interesting parts of IHL, this hard-headed pragmatism that it seems to operate under and then you've got this kind of hopeful humanitarianism at the same time and and that friction that that causes I find interesting to think about but but referring now to the the precautions uh, in attack the, the obligation of attackers how the obligation on attackers how do these provisions differ and and are, are there some interesting things to note in how precautions in attack and precautions against attack apply so the obligation to take precautions in attack in, in Article 57, which uh, Lauren talked about on the last uh, podcast, um, provides in quite a lot of detail an extensive list of precautions that should be taken. Um, again, this, the words um, feasibility is used, so those actions are actions to do everything feasible. Um, but there is details around the type of means and methods of attack uh, and the way in which you would minimise incidental civilian loss um, from that attack. And so because there are some similarities, there's certainly some guidance that can be drawn from uh, Article 57 for Article 58. However, there are some significant differences uh, as well. And so when we're talking about the obligations for the attacker, those are obligations that are specifically related to attacks. And so there is certainly wording in Article 58 
uh, which suggests a much broader view than that. Precautions against the effects of attacks can certainly be interpreted more broadly than just in respect of an attack. And also the use of this word, this phrase, military operations. Uh, and so it's been argued uh, by a number of, of scholars that military operations is clearly a much broader concept uh, than the concept of attacks. And so Article 57 uh, in that way is a much narrower range of actions that we're talking about, whereas when we're talking about Article 58, uh, we can talk about military operations in a much broader sense than simply an attack. Which I suppose reflects the fact that the defender doesn't necessarily know where the attack's going to come from, whereas for the attacker they have much more control over over what, what the attack will look like. Yeah, absolutely. When a state is taking actions in accordance with Article 58, they're taking those actions, you know, based on, on what might happen. Um, there's certainly been um, some discussion and, and um, Eric Jensen uh, is, is on record as saying, well, hold on, the, the defender is actually going to know the, the lay of the land better. They're going to know the situation uh, in relation to the attack uh, or what impact that attack might have better. And there certainly would be some situations where the defender might have a better better knowledge because um, of their understanding of the ground and the context. Um, but there will also be situations, I would argue, where actually the attacker has that element of surprise, they have that knowledge about what it is that they are going to engage in and therefore Article 58 is, is clearly requiring a broader range of responses because it has to encompass all of the different sorts of attacks that, that might come. And so it may, in that case, require actions to be taken over a much longer period of time. For example, avoiding locating military objectives within or near densely populated areas as an obligation under Article 58. You know, this probably means that you need to separate your military base from your populated areas for the duration of the conflict. So what if what if an attacker or a defender fails to comply with the obligation? Is it the same? Do they, do they bear the same liability and how does the law sort of intervene in that failure? There does seem to be a significant disparity between the potential liability of an attacker and a defender for failing to take precautions. So whilst, you know, we know that often uh, violations of international humanitarian law do go unpunished, uh, there is a quite clear obligation for someone who violates Article 57 and there are a number of uh, war crimes, uh, including under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, that may stem uh, from that where there is specifically uh, a, an attack uh, on a a military objective that causes disproportionate damage to the civilian population, for example, that doesn't comply with the principles of precaution, uh, then ultimately an individual may be held criminally responsible uh, for that. However, it doesn't seem that the legal framework does impose the same obligations on the defender comparable to those uh, on those who are launching the attack. So I think that's that's such a useful overview of, of this uh, obligation to take precautions in defence. But let's think about how that might apply uh, to to new technology and in particular to digital infrastructure. What are the I guess what's at stake? What what have what do we know about operations against digital infrastructure and how they might harm civilians? 
So we know that there's likely to be an impact on civilians through attacks on digital infrastructure. And the real question that seems to arise as a result of Article 58 is what is actually feasible when it comes to digital infrastructure? So the questions that need to be asked are things like, well, if you're talking about digital infrastructure, you're often talking about transmissions of information. Well, can those transmissions be separated? Can you identify which transmissions are military and which transmissions are are civilian? And this becomes a really significant issue when both the military and the civilians are using the same the same networks. They're using the same transmission infrastructure. Now there is this this obligation to to separate these, of course, and that's what we're talking about. But what does that actually look like? The context of an armed conflict and in the context of say article article 58 one of the areas that is attracting a little bit of attention and uh, we can give a shout out um, here to those working on this project for the international committee of the red cross and australian red cross is in relation to the emission perhaps of digital uh, protection symbols so digital markers in a way that indicates all this is civilian infrastructure or this is a protected uh, piece of of infrastructure. Uh, And so that's one of the the projects that that is taking place. Uh, But more generally, just asking these questions and trying to identify uh, for both the military and for the civilians, can the transmission infrastructure be separated? Can the networks be separated? And, And if they can't, what does that mean uh, for the military? Does that mean that the military can't use them or they need to use them in a different way or they need to identify their use of them in a particular way? And I guess another thing that's worth noting is how, like I think we have a much clearer model in our heads of what a kinetic military operation looks like and what sorts of things would have to be defended against. I think that's harder with a cyber operation against uh, against digital infrastructure, like it's that the the range of possible actions seems so much broader, um, and which I suppose raises the question of uh, what sorts of operations have to be taken into account, which is something you addressed earlier. So I mean, on on the reading that you were giving of of the obligation to take precautions in defence, that wouldn't it wouldn't be limited by the word attack, would it? It's, you, you see it as applying more broadly than that. Yes, certainly. And, and indeed, Article 58, uh, in particular 58C, talks about military operations uh, more broadly. And the examples that are given and the examples that I mentioned earlier about, well, what, what, what does that mean? That means organising a, a civil defence, um, organising shelters for the civilian population, organising relief supplies – all these things that are much much broader than attacks, um, they're all part of broader operations. And yeah, what does that look like in terms of the digital world? So, I mean, some of the the elements like alerts or warnings to the civilian population, well, this might actually be easier in the digital world. There may be uh, markers or different ways in which you can provide an alert or a warning over a digital network to indicate its status and and therefore to prevent an attack. There may be really clear actions that can be taken. So when we talked about uh, the civil defence force earlier, well, maybe 
having a specific part of your electromagnetic spectrum that is allocated for civil defence use and that can't be used uh, by the military or can't be used by corporate entities or, or anyone else and it's a dedicated part of that spectrum for that use, maybe that's, that's the way forward, maybe that's a solution. When we talk about the ideas around separation of, of military um, infrastructure and civilian objects, if the separation is not possible... Maybe there is a way in which your military passage through the civilian network can actually be much more effective and much swifter in the digital domain than it would be possibly in the non-digital domain. So it's not necessarily that things more difficult. It's just that a lot of these things haven't been thought about. And I guess what we are trying to do through the research um, that we've been doing is to to raise these questions and to ask these questions and ultimately to ensure that the designers of these systems have an understanding of the legal implications of those designs. So, I mean, I think an obvious um, objection that you might make to the, to the argument that you're making there is that, well, you're really through analogy or through kind of <laughs> you're arguing for the law to be seen in a really broad way that states might resist because it restricts them. But even if you weren't to accept, if you didn't accept that these were kind of legal obligations with relation to digital infrastructure, do you think there's still value in thinking about this obligation and how it might apply? Absolutely, because as we alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, a lot of this makes, uh, a lot of this is necessary for legal compliance. But a lot of this also just makes perfect military sense. And indeed, a lot of the Geneva Conventions themselves make military sense. There is no use uh, wasting your bullets on targets that are not going to help you achieve your military objective. And, And that's a premise that underpins the Geneva Conventions from the perspective of the the military. Don't waste your bullets on the civilian population because you need them to achieve your military uh, objective. And that has a military interest and a humanitarian interest. And I think the same can be said for what we're talking about now. Um, Ensuring that the military use of digital infrastructure is as isolated from the civilian networks as possible makes military sense. It's a good system design consideration. Ensuring um, that you have backup systems, for example, for your essential civilian communications just makes practical sense. It's a good system design consideration. So there are legal obligations and states need to comply with those legal obligations, but quite often complying with those legal obligations actually makes military sense in the context of complying with international humanitarian laws. Yeah, I think. I mean, obviously, I think that's that's persuasive. Um, I think the other thing that that is makes it even more important, perhaps, with digital infrastructure, is that once these once a cyber operation begins in a moment of armed conflict, the the temporal window is so compressed. There's no time to do anything because things are happening at a at a speed that that is beyond human um, comprehension. When, when things are sort of triggered and, and the, the program runs at programming light speed effectively. Uh, so everything has to sort of be done in advance in a way. And I think that what you've said makes a lot of sense in that where 
using the the traditional rules of IHL, which are, uh, I guess, based on a very different understanding of the world and what military operations are and thinking about what how can these values be retained in in the digital world? Yeah, and I feel like all of the research that we've been doing uh, as part of the Law and the Future of War team over the last couple of years, you know, has this at its core. Um, obviously, in relation to cyber infrastructure, we're talking about incredibly um, fast speeds that don't allow for that that time of reflection. And that just makes it even clearer that things have to be built into the the system from from the beginning. You you need to make inquiries to check that compliance with Article 58 is possible well in advance of there being a situation of armed conflict. And so, you know, if you had sort of a way of, of summing up at least a lot of the findings that I've had, it's that in the in the development and in the design of uh, means and methods of warfare going forward, thinking about the legal requirements as part of that process is obviously uh, a, a legal requirement for, for many states in compliance with Additional Protocol 1, uh, but it also just makes a lot of sense from uh, using resources wisely. So if, if our listeners want to explore this idea of precautions in defence more, are there particular sources other than eagerly waiting for our paper to come out? Where would you suggest they look? So the International Committee of the Red Cross's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog has had a couple of different uh, thematic focuses on this. Uh, one of them was a few years ago, uh, but around the notion of sort of war in cities and and um, Eric Jensen's piece that we mentioned earlier about um, attacks on cities is, is a part of that series. Um, so I would definitely recommend that uh, as one point of call. And then uh, very recently, we also mentioned that they are doing some work on uh, having sort of digital marking for protected symbols. And, and that's also a part of the humanitarian law and policy uh, blog. So I would definitely recommend that resource to our listeners. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for this conversation, Eve. I found it really, really interesting and, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.